Good morning. How are you guys doing? I, it's crazy to me that it's February, which means it's almost March, which means spring break is almost here. Are you guys ready for that? Yeah. I know. It, I feel like the longest stretch is when you get back from, you know, winter break, and then you wait like six, eight weeks till spring break, but it's so close. And a little bit of a shameless plug is Friday, Valentine's Day, which I'm sure you guys are all celebrating uh, with your friends or your significant others, is the last day to sign up for PLEA if you guys want to go on a mission trip. And I think it's pretty fitting that it's on Valentine's Day because our very own Derek, I didn't know I was going to do this, our very own Derek Butine basically met his wife and kind of started conversations with his wife going on PLEA. So if you want to meet your future spouse, go on PLEA. Or if you want to serve God, go on PLEA. But either way, both are fine and good. Uh, but again, that's the deadline. Um, but I'm excited to open up God's Word with you guys this morning. We're in our series, The Jesus Questions. All semester, we have been going through 20 or so questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. And I was thinking about questions as our lives are filled with questions. We ask questions every day. And, and predominantly, school is made up of questions and answers from teachers or professors and students. And they say that in kindergarten through 12th grade, there are three to 400 questions asked between a teacher and a student, right? And, and 80% of these questions are usually knowledge-based. Can you recall the factual information? Can you regurgitate those things? And if you guys are familiar, I was not until I was started preparing this sermon, but if you're an education major or a teacher or a professor, you might be familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, right? This, this level of questions where, and I think there's a picture of it that we'll see, but at the bottom is knowledge-based questions. They're a lower order of question that don't require as much critical thinking skills. And then you go to comprehension, which is, okay, do you understand the concept? And so on and so forth. And there's a fascinating study that's called Jesus and Bloom. How effective was Jesus at getting people to think critically? That's an actual paper. You can look it up. If you're interested, let me know. But they take the whole book of Matthew, which is where our question is at today, and compare it to Bloom's taxonomy to see where Jesus' questions fall and whether or not he was a good question asker. And what they found was 87% of Jesus's questions span multiple categories. There's very few that are just knowledge-based. There's very few that are just about comprehending, but they cause you to apply to your life. They cause you to analyze, to reflect. And they're questions that may not have one right answer, which we don't always like. And here's a fascinating thing is there are five questions that only stay at the bottom two categories of knowledge and comprehension. And those five questions were either directly or indirectly asked to the Pharisees and lawyers. Which is fascinating because they were also the most educated and most religious and supposedly the most righteous people of the time. Yet those are the questions, maybe he thought those who are educated, which are hopefully us, really couldn't think, uh, higher, right? Maybe he didn't. Anyway, but they, he, they asked the Pharisees, and all the Pharisees could do was regurgitate information. And I have a hunch that maybe that's us a little bit too, is that we can recall a lot of information about Scripture. We can regurgitate Bible stories, but have we actually let the truths of Scripture sink deep into our heart? 
Because sometimes when Jesus' questions are posed to us, we're quick to give the right answer rather than the honest answer. Right? We're quick to give what's factually true rather than what's actually going on in our hearts. And Jesus doesn't want the right answer. He wants the honest answer. So my hope this morning is that as we ask today's question, that we answer it with the honest answer. That we allow the potential answer of this question to seek deep into our hearts and maybe even let it sting or hurt just a little bit to see if that leads to, for us to have a way forward. And so our question this morning is found in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 5. And I want to read that text for us this morning. Here's Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And here's the question. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right, so the question, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye before the log in your own eye. And the, the danger of this text already is it's familiar. It's in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's often a text that we, we know the question. We've heard it before. We're familiar with it. Oh, we're not supposed to judge people. Cool. And that's where we leave it. But hopefully we can let it go just a little bit deeper than that. And I think the text actually gives us three different answers to the question that we can apply to our lives. And so, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Right? I think it's easy for us sometimes to say, oh, I'm not a judgmental person. Right? I, I have grace, you know, for people most of the time. At least outwardly I do, maybe not in my thoughts. But I wonder if we replace the word judge with criticize. Criticize not that you be not criticized. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it. I believe it's, it's on the screen in, in the message. Verse 1, he says, Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Don't pick on people. Don't jump on their failures or criticize their faults. In Christian circles, sometimes we talk about righteous judgment or righteous anger. And, and there's places for that, right? We, we can take that from Scripture where Jesus says, hey, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. But here's the difference. Right judgment, I think, is slow. It's intentional. It waits. It's in conversation with the Holy Spirit. But criticism is hasty. It's quick. It's condemning. It's mean-spirited, and it's of the persuasion that you are always right. Right? Criticism is the thought it's their fault when you walk by a homeless person. Right? It's the condescending tone of a question that you ask somebody. 
It's the pointing out of a mistake to somebody that they already know they made. It's the sarcastic joke pointing out somebody's weakness that they already know they have. It's the, it's the rolling of the eyes. It's the disgusted scoff. It's anything or any thought that places us in superiority over another person. That's criticism. Anything or any thought that places us in superiority over another person. And the type of judgment Jesus is telling us not to partake in is that. Is anything that makes us superior than another human being. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we think we're superior. I think, I think we think that we are superior or better than the average person. And so that, that's the first reason why I think we see the speck in another's before the log in our own. It's because we think we are superior. And this is actually proven by several uh, psychologists in their tests. Maybe you guys have heard of illusory superiority. So these are different tests that started because, and I believe it was like 1995, a man in Pittsburgh who was five foot seven, 275 pounds, or 270 pounds. So short and squatty. He couldn't just blend in. He was pretty round. That's okay. It's not a bad, but he decided to rob two banks on the same day in Pittsburgh. And he just walked into the banks and he smiled at the camera. He robbed them just leisurely walked out of the banks and did that twice in a row. He goes home. He's enjoying his evening. He's surprised when the cops show up at his house to arrest him. And you know what his response was to the cops that came to arrest him? He said, but I wore the juice. What does that mean? You, right? But I wore the juice. So apparently he thought that rubbing lemon juice all over your body and you didn't get near a heat source, that means you wouldn't be picked up by security cameras because invisible ink, I guess, is made with lemon juice. And so think about it. He like bathed in lemon juice thinking he wouldn't be caught and he got arrested. So I thought, wow, what could we do with it? There's cameras around campus. Does anyone want to try this with a lemon? Can you imagine being in Robert Taylor's office or Derek's office and you're getting in trouble or you get caught by security on campus and just... I wore the juice, man. <laughs> yeah, anyone? Here you go, Cade. There's the lemon for you. He's an RA. Don't do anything with that. Give it to somebody else. Right? But, but here's the crazy thing. The cops decided this man wasn't just crazy or on drugs or mentally unstable. They just, they just figured out he was just sadly mistaken. And, and, and so this caused some psychologists to do a number of tests where they began to ask people in different areas to rate themselves, like on a scale of 1 to 10. Driving, IQ, your grammar skills. Um, even they went to a gun range to see, okay, are, and m almost everybody always says they are above average. For instance, 80% of drivers on the road believe they are an above average or excellent driver. The math just doesn't work, right? People think they are better than they are. And here's the conclusion that they came to. Why does this happen? Because we judge other people based on their actions, but we judge ourselves based on our intentions. We judge other people based on what they do, 
but we judge ourselves based on what we think about doing. We assume the worst about somebody else, but the best about ourselves. And I think if we're honest, this is us. I think part of this is because we live in an age of information, information's at our fingertips, right? We know just enough about everything to be dangerous. So we feel like we can partake in any conversation or anything because we can look it up. Or just take this room, for instance, right? One, most of us, again, this is going to be a generalization, live in America, or at least study in America. We are probably mainly middle class. We go to a university that costs $40,000 a year. Yes, you get scholarships. Regardless, it's expensive. We are getting a college education or have a college education, and we have PhDs. We are, in, we are the best of the best by all common standards in the world. Money, education, all of these things. And I think we believe it, and I think we live like it. And we don't actually recognize our need for Jesus. And we may know that we're not supposed to like verbally or outwardly act like we're better than people, but it's an internal battle or thought that we have. And I think that's why we see the speck in another person's eye before the log in our own. is because we think we're superior. And this hurts people. Here's what Oswald Chambers writes. He says this, Someone who is continually criticized becomes good for nothing. The effect of criticism knocks out all the gumption and the power of a person. The issue of us criticizing or jumping on somebody's failures or weaknesses is when you begin to speak that into their life, they start to believe it and they start to live into that reality. They believe what you are criticizing about them. And maybe the even more concerning thing is that when we criticize people, when we jump on in judgment, we actually begin to believe that we're better than them. And it makes us hard-hearted and cruel and vindictive. That's what happens when we criticize. People believe it, and we believe that we're better. Can I just, just pause for a moment? If, if you've been criticized, and not just here and there, but if, if you're the constant object or subject of criticism from your parents, from your friends, maybe just from a whispering thought from the enemy, I'm sorry. Can I tell you you're valuable? Can I tell you that you matter? That you are loved? That you are talented and gifted? And I want you to hear those words of life so that they can lift you up rather than hearing the whispers of the enemy that suck the life out of you. You matter. So why do we see the speck in our brother's eye but don't notice the log in our own? It's because we think we are superior. Here's what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This might be the most alarming verse in the whole text. Right? Again, I want to go back to what Eugene Peterson says in the message. Here, is, here are his verses 1 and 2 of this text. Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. How we treat people. 
How we criticize people is how we will be treated, how we will be criticized. And this isn't just words from Jesus, but if we go to Psalm chapter 18, we, we look at this. Verse 26 says this, with, purif- with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Right? It, it keeps going, but basically is... It's that the psalmist is talking to God, and he says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the pure, you show yourself pure. But with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. Right? This, this is an eternal command. Right? This is a way in which the universe works and is oriented. The way in which we judge or criticize another person is the way in which we will be judged or criticized. Think about it like this. If you were to stand before God in this moment, would you have the confidence to say, God, judge me as I've judged other people. Criticize me as, I, as I've criticized other people. My answer would be no. I would be in hell because I can be mean and I can be cruel. Ask my wife, and that's like a joke, but not a joke at all, right? But I can be mean, I can be cruel, I can be critical, I can point out these things, and maybe it's not always outwardly or verbally or based on my emotions, but it's internally. Although I might say those who are closest to us, our parents, our siblings, our roommates, our spouses, often they're the ones who bear the brunt of the outward emotion and outward judgment that we have, and it's unfair to them because they're the people that love us the most. Why do we do this? Here's the second answer, I think. It's because we have sin in us. We have sin in us. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, he says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Let that sink in. Every one of you who judges has no excuse. Why? Because the thing you point out in another person is the very thing you practice yourself. I think this is a good principle for all of life. Often times, the things that we feel the urge to criticize in somebody else are the very things we don't like about ourselves. The very things we notice in another person, their failures, their faults, the weird thing they do that just drives you nuts. Those are often the things that we struggle with and that we don't like about ourselves, and so we take it out on another person because we're not ready to deal with it internally in our own hearts. So rather than heeding the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are taking on the role of the Holy Spirit in another person's life. Right? Think about it. Sometimes when you feel the urge to criticize another human being, it's actually God's grace in bringing the Holy Spirit to us to convict ourselves of sin. But rather than allowing that to happen, rather than sitting in our sin and confessing it and recognizing it, we don't want to do that, and so we project it onto another person that doesn't deserve it. And then we take it in Christian language, oh, because the Holy Spirit comes to convict, we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, so we get to do this, right? We take a, a judgment and a critical spirit in Christian language to say, oh no, that, that's wrong, I'm calling it out. 
But our job is not to convict people of their sin. That is the Holy Spirit's job. And I think a good rule to understand, okay, is, is my judgment or critique of the Holy Spirit, or of, is it not? Do your words crush a person, or do they convert a person? Do they hurt a person, or do they heal a person? Are they words of life that bring them up, or are they words of death that, that just, as Oswald Chambers said, sucks the gumption out of a human being and makes them feel good for nothing? Not only that, but I think another way that we can tell whether or not our urge to criticize is of the Holy Spirit is the fact that we actually don't feel the urge to criticize, we feel the urge to pray. I want to go back to Oswald Chambers. Here's what he says, and I I want you to look at this. He says this, When the Holy Spirit reveals something of the nature of sin and unbelief in others, his purpose is not to make us feel the smug satisfaction of critical spectators. Well, thank God I'm not like that. But to make us lay hold of God for them, that God enables them to turn away from the wrong thing. Too often when we see people doing something they shouldn't or something that we don't like, we're like, man, they need Jesus, but we need Jesus. Right? Not, oh, they need you. Right? That's like a, like, I don't know, maybe in the South it's more of a thing. But, you know, you're in a conversation with a person, and I'm picturing like, a middle-aged woman. I don't know why I picture this. Maybe it's because I was a teacher and I worked with a lot of middle-aged women. But they're like, oh yeah, that student needs Jesus, right? That was, anyway, that was Louisiana. And, and I'd be like, no, I need Jesus. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Are you speaking of someone or are you speaking to God for someone? Are you speaking of someone, or are you speaking to God for someone? Right, so why do we see this speck in our brother's eye for the log in our own? We think we're superior. We have sin in us. And then Jesus continues. He, he actually gets to the question now, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. We'll stop there. So what's the third reason? Because we're hypocrites. We are hypocrites. And now Jesus asks the question that we've been dealing with, but he doesn't just ask why, he asks how. He actually comes to this with a little bit of humor because he's like, How do you even see the speck, the grain of sand, the tiny thing that's in your brother's eye when you have a giant log blocking your vision? We criticize somebody, yet we can't even see them. That is a hypocrite. One of my favorite definitions of a hypocrite is this. A hypocrite is a profound ignorance of oneself with an arrogant presumption to have knowledge about others, primarily their faults. Being a hypocrite is having a profound, basically a profound ignorance of you, but thinking you know everything about somebody else, especially their sins, their faults, their weaknesses, their failures. And I think here, we get to this point, and I recognize not everyone struggles with thinking they're superior. I think we can all agree we have sin in us. We can all agree that we're hypocrites in some ways. But some people are like, Sam, I don't, I don't struggle with being superior. I just had my trust broken a lot. And so I don't trust people. 
right? And that could be various reasons. We see all the time in the media pastors falling from grace because of affairs, because of sexual assault things, right? That, that's common. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody in authority and your trust has been broken. Maybe a friend just bails on you all the time, last second, and it's frustrating. You know, maybe your parents have been non-existent and when they are present, it's about what you've done and it's about, it, they're highly critical, Right? Which, can I just tell you, whatever your circumstances, I'm sorry. It's unfair. It's not the way it's intended to be. But what we end up doing is we project the person who's broken that trust onto everybody else. And regardless, even though that hurts and it's not fair, regardless, that's a form of self-protection and a form of superiority because we're kidding ourselves if we think we're never going to break trust or never going to disappoint somebody or never, do what we're gonna, never not do what we say we're going to do. We break God's trust daily, yet he's faithful to forgive over and over and over. We're hypocrites and we expect perfection out of others when we ourselves fall short daily. But the gospel is the great equalizer of all people. Both sin and grace strip every person everywhere of every boast. Both sin and grace strip every person everywhere of every single boast. All of us in this room are at the same time sinners who deserve death, and children of the living God who are fully, and accept, fully accepted and fully loved. We are at the same time children, we are at the same time sinners who deserve death and children of the living, gracious, kind, faithful Father, fully and accepted, fully and loved, and that's the tension and we must live and the tension where we must rest. And that's every person. And when we recognize that, I believe we will be a whole lot le less critical so why do we see the speck? We think we're superior, we have sin in us, and we are hypocrites. If this is where the sermon ended, it'd be really sad. Basically, I've just told us we're terrible. And we are. This isn't me, can I just tell you guys, this isn't me preaching to you. The Lord always preaches the message to me first before giving it, and I am convicted, and I am here with you, and I'm in the midst of this, and I'm guilty of all of these things daily. So what do we do? Here's verse 5. It gives us a way forward. It's great. As the band comes out, that's perfect. Right? It says, you, verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's the answer? What do we do so that we don't see the speck first? So we take the log out of our eye. But this is hard. How do we do it? We can't. We don't. It's only by the grace of Jesus. And our experience of the boundless grace of Jesus will cause us to be grace-filled to every other person. Because we know that if God can save us, God can save anyone. We know if God can heal us of our sins and our addictions and our struggles, he can do that for any person. So here's, here's where I kind of want to end. So have you experienced God's grace? Not do you know about God's grace, but have you experienced it? And I think we can tell by repentance. Have you repented of your sin? Have you repented of the fact that we think we're superior? Have we repented of the fact that we have deep, dark, 
deadly sin in us? Have we repented of the fact that we are hypocrites daily? And the antidote to all of those sins and all of those struggles and all of those issues, the antidote is repentance. Not just a a confession of sin or a knowledge that you have it, but a godly grief over your sin. Paul says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? Godly grief, godly sorrow, hating your sin produces repentance, a turning away from sin that leads to salvation without regret. And I love that the word salvation can also be related to the word salve, which was a healing for the eyes. It was an ointment for the eyes. And our text says, you know what? When you take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly. Your eyes will be able to see as they should and will be drawn to our knees for people rather than feeling the need to criticize them. And not just that, but the word to see, then we will see clearly, that's the same exact word that's used of of Jesus in John chapter 5 when it says that he sees what the Father is doing. When we grieve over our sin, when we recognize it, when we say, I do that, our eyes will be healed, our eyes will be cleansed, and we will be able to begin to see all that God is doing in us and in the world and other people, and we will believe that, and we will live like that, and we will be full of grace rather than full of critique. And so we're going to sing a song. We're going to end. It's the last thing we're going to do. And, and, and I want to stay here because I don't want us to move quick, too quickly from our sin to hope, but I want us to actually kind of sit in our sin. I actually want us to begin to grieve over it. But what I want you to know, grief does not lead to shame or fear or works righteousness. It does not lead to guilt because that is the grief of the world and of the enemy and that leads to death. But godly grief leads to salvation. Godly grief leads to healing. Godly grief leads to Jesus. It leads to life. So we're going to sing. And I want you to grieve. Because that leads to Jesus and that leads to life and his arms are open and he is not angry. He just wants you to experience salvation without regret.